As I've said before, if you've been around, you know I like music, and I like all kinds of music. Uh, this time of year, you'll often find me listening to Cambridge choral songs, uh, like old carols and stuff like that. Sarah says it's really weird because they look like opposing teams sitting in bleachers singing at one another. I like to listen to stuff like that. I like new music. But one of the types of music that I like, because I grew up with it, I didn't have a choice, is what's called Southern Convention songs, right? And so think Old South, a church building about this size, hard floors, hard pews, filled with people singing shape notes loudly with bouncy piano, and you kind of have an idea of what I grew up crawling under pews listening to when I was a kid. And my granddad wrote some of these songs and stuff, and he wrote, he wrote about the glory of God in this kind of music. And, um, you know, some of those places we went, the churches didn't even have air conditioning. They had to open the windows. You think hot, sultry, southern days, uh, a warm wind blowing through, old men in like gray suits and stuff. And that's the, uh, the kind of music that I grew up with. And my wife hasn't got to experience that in its fullness, but she has been to a couple of those when we go back to Georgia, and one of them was this last spring. We went to this singing. It was an evening. It wasn't an all-day thing, um, and they were singing these shape note songs out of a hymn book, and the reason I tell all that is there was an instance where there was a younger couple that got up, and they had on these t-shirts at this singing, and everybody made a big deal over these t-shirts, and these t-shirts said, just Jesus, and they were matching, and they were a young couple in their 20s, maybe late teens, and some woman behind Sarah and I, and we're already sitting in the back, she stands up and goes, I just want to point out, it says, just Jesus, period. And you know, I thought about that as I was sitting there, and I said, what does it mean? What does it mean, just Jesus, period? Well, if they mean by these shirts that their hope in life and death is in Christ alone, then I say, amen. I agree. But if what they mean is a truncated, overly simplified gospel, then that's another story. Right? We can't just truncate the Christian faith down to two words. The question then would have to be, which Jesus is the just Jesus? We say the right one. Well, how do you know? Right? Because as we look throughout what calls itself Christianity, maybe just if we just look at America, just in our country, look at all the different flavors of Jesus one might encounter. There's the Mormon Jesus. The oneness Pentecostal, which is just modern-day modalism. There's that Jesus. There's the, the Roman Jesus. There's the NAR Jesus. There's an NAR group here in town who not only claim Jesus, but they posted recently on social media that they're celebrating Hanukkah and solstice. Is it just that Jesus? Remember the Jefferson Bible we talked about? Thomas Jefferson, who takes the New Testament and, and cuts all of the miraculous stuff out to it just has the moral teachings of Jesus? Which Jesus? I think we would all say it's important that we get Jesus right. So, as we think about Advent and the Incarnation... What do we need to think about to get right there? Must a person, for instance, believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian? I've had people say, no, you can be a Christian and not believe in the virgin birth. I've had people in this town tell me that. 
Well, he's, the people who have said that are not alone. Harry Emerson Fosdick said, of course, I don't believe in the virgin birth, and I don't know of any intelligent minister who does. Robert Funk of the Jesus Seminar, right? Like it's an ironic name. He's of the Jesus Seminar. And he says the virgin birth degrades women. Robert Bell, who I do not recommend you go listen to, says, what if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find that Larry's tomb and do DNA samples to prove beyond a shadow of doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing that the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular around the time of Jesus and whose gods had virgin births. If we found this out, he says, could we still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? And if the whole thing falls apart, was it really that strong in the first place? So friends, I'm asking a rhetorical question here. I know we are, have a history of answering my rhetorical questions. So this is a rhetorical question. But do we need to believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation to call ourselves Christians? Yes. Yes. This morning, I will argue that the incarnation is foundational to Christianity because Jesus Christ is truly man and Jesus Christ is truly God. It's a simple outline this morning. The incarnation is foundational to Christianity because Jesus Christ is fully God and Jesus Christ is fully man. So first, from the outside, you know, some of you may be unfamiliar with that word incarnation. So let's talk about that. What does it mean when we say incarnation? The incarnation is the act of God the Son when he took to himself human nature. So the incarnation is God the Son, eternally existent, becoming man, taking human flesh to himself. And I would argue that this doctrine is, a, is fundamental to our salvation. And one older pastor from Kansas City, who some of you might know his name if I mentioned it, he recently wrote it, to neglect to teach about the incarnation all year long is a big miss for pastors. So this is something we should think about every year, and we generally think about it at Christmas time. Now, I want to put a disclaimer in this. It's a little bit different kind of, a, of, of sermon. One, it is more doctrinal than just walking through a verse. We're all going to walk through verses, don't get me wrong, but it is a little more doctrinal. We're thinking about a certain doctrine, and two, we're not going to get a lot of illustrations in this sermon. Why is that? People like illustrations, right? Like lots of times you can't remember a passage I preach from, which is, I, I'm the same way, but you'll remember an illustration. Like how many people remember the rabbit illustration from four years ago? It got me a lot of emails, that one. But a lot of people can't tell what passage it went with it, right? So a good preacher knows to put a lot of illustrations in his sermons, but when it comes to talking about things like the Incarnation, or the Trinity. Sometimes illustrations and examples can have like a reverse effect. They can lead us astray. So I say all that to say less illustrations, but more concrete guardrails that keep us out of the ditches that many have fallen into as we walk through these passages today. And the first thing we're going to think about is that Jesus Christ is truly man. 
And if you turn with me to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is God's inerrant word, we read, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. Now in these passages, we find God's plan for the birth of the Messiah. We, we, we find God fulfilling promises that he made in the Old Testament to send this Davidic king. You see, the Old Testament said that this Davidic king, the Christ, the Messiah, would be born in the city of David. Read that in, in Micah 5.2. In Israel, it was well known that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, except we could say at least documented for one guy who probably should have known where the Messiah would come from but didn't, and his name was Herod. He was one of the Herods. He was the king. And we read in Matthew's gospel uh, a passage that uh, Kenan is going to preach from, on uh, uh, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. We read that he had to ask, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? Because he didn't know. And he's answered from his advisors. They say the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea because that is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because from out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You find that in Matthew 10, or 2. So we see God's providence here, because even though Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem, God would still get them there. We see God's providence in working through rulers of the day to fulfill that prophecy. Right? Like remember our first Sunday of Advent, we talked about God speaking through a pagan priest, Balaam. Well, here he's using pagan rulers to bring about his plan. Remember that the next time you're mad at politics, right? Like God is still in control. Caesar Augustus decrees that all of his empire should be registered and taxed. Who brought the tax? God or Caesar? Yes. Right? God worked through Caesar to bring this tax, and even more down the line than that, because when, when, when Caesar orders this tax, it's not the same as his day. It's not like he got on Twitter and said, hey, everybody in all my regions, all you governors do a tax. Like, the, like letters had to go out to people. And then those governors, had to, th when they get the letter, they have to think, all right, how am I going to do this? And, and so all of these regions would have been taxed not simultaneously. Right? Because the ones closer to Rome, well, they may have got the letter and started right away, and the, and the ones further away, it may have took a little while. But what we see is in the working of God, Caesar decrees it, the governor gets it, and it all works out to where they're in Bethlehem 
when Mary gives birth. It wasn't their time. It was God's time. Because in the Old Testament, it says that the, the Messiah will come from the city of David, but we also see that the Christ would be born of the house of David. Look with me back at verse 4 again. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. So God promised in the Old Testament, he promises David, we've talked a lot about the Davidic covenant, please know that covenant, but he promises David that out of his line, out of his, his family, would come a king who would reign forever. And we see that both David in the scriptures, if we look at other scriptures, we won't go there because we don't have time, but both David and Mary are of David's family line. And God has promised that his ancestor will come from this line, will come from Bethlehem, this king that would rule forever. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. He would come from David's line, and he did. What did we learn a few weeks ago? We knew it already, but we were reminded God always keeps his promises. God promised the anointed king, the Messiah, would come from David's line and would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 now. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. So they get to this town, the city of David, they're of the house and lineage of David, and Mary gives birth. Now, in these two verses, we read of Christ's physical birth. Right? So we, we read a couple of weeks ago when the Gabriel, the angel, comes and announces that Jesus will be born, that she would be overshadowed by God, right? God's Spirit would come upon Mary, and she would supernaturally conceive. Now, we talk about the virgin birth, but what, in reality, what we mean is the virgin conception. The virgin conception was miraculous, but there's nothing in these verses that lead us to believe that the birth was anything other than a normal birth. We see that, 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 that Jesus grows in the womb through normal means, that he enters the world through normal birthing procedures. Friends, 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born. He was born and he was wrapped tightly in swaddling cloth. Now there's parents in this room that are, are getting to a lot of time in swaddling babies right now, right? I know of at least three families that are getting in time swaddling babies. You know, in, in the first century though, these weren't like the soft blankets. I remember when we had Hazel and uh, we just had this huge anxiety because we go to this place called Bye Bye Baby or Babies RS. I don't remember which one it was in Kansas City. Um, and they give you this list of all the things you need when you're having a baby, right? And there's like 15 different types of blankets, and you got to have four of each, and you got to have all these things. And I remember Sarah, she's already got the pregnancy hormones going, and she just like sort of breaks down and starts crying. And she's like, I'm afraid I'm not going to get the right blankets. And I'm like, we have to go off to the side. And I'm like, you know what? There are people in third world countries right now that are having babies and wrapping them in potato sacks, right? Like, it's going to be okay. And in this day, though, the swaddling they're doing, we swaddle babies to soothe them, right? 
right? Like we're going to pack them in tight. We're going to make sure they sleep well. We're going to, you know, get them all swaddled up. But back then it was a little different. At least the scholars I was reading this week said that. And they said they have these long strips back in the first century, and they would swaddle these babies to keep their limbs straight, right? So they would grow right. And, and, and some of y'all are in a medical community. You can fact check me on first century Palestine birthing practices. Um, and, and if you're wrong, we will write InterVarsity Press a letter, because I know we have medical people here. But what it seems to be is that they were, the, they were advised to keep these babies swaddled for between 40 and 60 days so that they would grow up straight. Now, why do I go into all that, right? Is that just some interesting facts? Because it appears that Jesus, the Son of God, was swaddled and by all the normal medical practices of the day, a normal birth, and whether you think it's a cave under a house or a shed or a barn, wherever, it's not in an inn, we know that, or a guest room, was swaddled and had a normal birth. His conception was divine, overshadowed by the power of God. But his birth is a human birth. All the pains, all the crying, all the worries. Right? Joseph's hand was probably sore for a couple days because there was no epidurals. Right? Like all the normal births, a truly human childbirth. And I stress that to you because Jesus Christ is truly man. Jesus Christ is truly man. 1 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that God was manifest in human flesh. He did not merely appear to be human, like some sort of phantom that doesn't leave footprints in the sand. That's a weird thing that people believed a long, long time ago. He ate, he drank, he slept. He had an entirely human existence. Jesus is man. Now, we want to be precise here, though. Because sometimes people will say to me, well, if Jesus is truly man, then he had to experience sin. Because I am a human and I sin. Right? No, my friend. Because you are fallen humanity. I am fallen humanity. Jesus is true humanity. What humanity was intended to be, faithful to the Father. Remember that. He is holy. He is what humanity was intended to be, faithful to the Father and perfectly faithful to His Father's commands. He did not sin. He could not sin. And they'll say, well, well, okay, but He was tempted in every way, so that means that, you know, I struggle with this, so did Jesus. I struggle with greed. Jesus struggled with greed. I struggle with, with, with lust and pornography. Jesus struggled with those. No, 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 no. Remember, all of Jesus' temptations were external. They were outside of Him. You and I are tainted from the fall so that our temptations and our, and our desires are tainted by sin throughout all of us. Total depravity. But Jesus' temptations were all external. And sin never found a landing pad in His heart. You and I, we have lusts and things that well up from within because of our fallen nature, but not Jesus. And I think that that desire to want a Jesus that struggles with sin and a Jesus that struggles with temptation comes from a desire to have a safer Jesus. That Jesus seems safer, right? Like, he's, he's more like me. 
He struggles with what I struggle with. But friends, I would argue that you really, 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 really do not want a Jesus who struggles with an internal inclination to sin. You don't. That Jesus isn't trustworthy. That, that, that Jesus cannot atone for your sin. He cannot stand in as your sacrifice. He cannot stand in as your substitutes because that Jesus does not exist. Jesus is holy. He is true humanity. He never had an internal inclination towards sin. And temptation never found a landing pad in his heart. Why? Because Jesus Christ is truly God. Yes, he's truly man. Normal birth. Swaddling clothes. But he's also truly God. Turn with me in your copy of God's word over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> the Apostle John writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Friends, the Word here is Jesus. He is the Word incarnate. We see that the Word was there in the beginning with the Father. In the beginning, all things were created through Christ. We see that not one thing was created apart from Christ. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's the creator of all things. We see in the Gospels that he is worshipped. Where do we worship anything that isn't God? Usually in the Old Testament, they throw rocks at you if you do that, right? So when we say just Jesus, who is just Jesus? Well, just Jesus is truly man, yet he created all things. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the very God. He and the Father are one. They are the same substance, begotten, not created. All of those words we use and we sing about in these old hymns that I love that Alan picks, they matter. They matter. Over and over we've seen light associated with God in the Messiah in the Old Testament. The, the, the star of Jacob that will rise, this great light that will shine. And here we see Jesus as the light shining into the darkness, yet the darkness does not overtake it. Look at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observe His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Jesus Christ the eternal God came, took to himself human flesh, and dwelt among us, and he did not lose his divine nature. He did not lay aside the fact that he is God. The eternal Son came in the form of a human baby. A baby did not become God. God the Son became a baby. 
Jesus humbled himself to take on human nature. He dwelt among us. He lived among us as humans. He walked beside people. He ate with people. That is the incarnation. What does this passage teach us about the divinity of Christ? That God the Son was in the beginning. That the universe was created through God the Son. God the Son is the light darkness cannot overcome. Salvation is found in God the Son. And God the Son dwelt among us. He became flesh. Friends, God, Jesus is truly God. Truly God. Louis Burkhoff says, No one who accepts the Bible as an errant can doubt the fact that Christ is truly God. The only way, the reverse of that, the only way to, to get away from Christ being truly God is to say that the Bible is not inerrant. Because in Matthew 1.23, we read that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Christ is the same substance with the Father. Homo usia, not homoi, right? Like this is the time of year where that meme floats around of St. Nicholas punching Arius, right? It's the, the homo usia crew that you want to be with. Jesus never laid aside his divinity. Though his divinity was masked by his human form, he remained fully God. He remained sinless the entire time he walked the earth. So we have seen in these two passages, these two parallel passages, that Jesus Christ is truly man and he is truly God. So what does the incarnation mean for us practically? Practically, how should we live? Well, I have four things that the Incarnation teaches us this morning. First, the Incarnation teaches us to, that we must think rightly about Christ. Right? Like if you're wearing a shirt that says just Jesus and you mean that all of my hope is in Christ, okay. If it means I don't care about the theology or who Christ is, I'm not okay. You're not okay. Christ did not begin to exist 2,000 years ago or even at the beginning of the world. Jesus Christ is before all things. He is eternally existence. I love, I don't quote this document very much, but I love the way that the second article of the Anglican 39 article says it. Like, I almost wish we, could, if we had the time to just stay and exposit this, but I'm going to read it to you. The second article says this, of the Word or Son of God, which was made very man. The Son which is the word of the Father, begotten from everlasting of the Father, and very and eternal God, and of one substance with the Father, took man's nature in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, of her substance, so that two whole and perfect natures, that is to say God and man, were joined together, in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man, who truly suffered, was crucified, dead, and buried to reconcile us to his Father, and to be a sacrifice not only for original guilt, but for the actual sins of men. I know that's a lot, but I, I, I love that statement right there in the middle. He took man's nature to himself in the womb of the Blessed Virgin so that two whole and perfect natures, right? This isn't fallen humanity. This is perfect humanity. And God is perfect. 
These two whole and perfect natures joined together, never to be divided. So Jesus Christ is fully man right now at the right hand of the Father. He didn't give up his his manness and went back to being just God. He is fully God and fully man right now. One Christ, very God and very man. Friend, this is your 75 cent word for the day. Hypostatic union. This is the hypostatic union. This is the union of Christ's human and divine natures in one person. Not becoming, it's another 75 cent word, a, 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 uh, a tertium quid. It's not a third thing, right? So it's not as though there are three things. There is God, there is man, and then there's a third thing, Jesus. No, 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 no. He is both truly God and truly man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. That is horrible math but it is great theology. We need to think less in terms of unpacking how it all works and more as what the Bible teaches us as guardrails that keep us within the bounds of biblical Christianity. If you elevate his manhood and lower his divinity, you don't have the biblical Jesus. If you do it vice versa, the same thing. We have to think rightly about Christ. He is truly God. He is truly man. The virgin conception, she was overshadowed by the power of God. Sinless. He is sinless. He died for the sins of his bride. He rose from the grave on the third day. Still truly God, still truly man, not divided. And he ascended to the Father. The incarnation teaches us we have to think rightly about Jesus. Second, the incarnation reminds us of the depravity of man. The incarnation reminds us of the depravity of man because we need a Savior. We couldn't produce one on our own. That's why when we say just Jesus, if we mean that all of my hope is in Christ, I say amen because I can never do enough good stuff to make up for my rebellion against a holy God. Our sin nature means that our inclination is to rebel against God. Since the fall in the garden, we have all inherited this sin nature and actively rebel by sinning and breaking His holy commands. We are all guilty. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell. We are completely incapable of making up for our rebellion against a holy God. We cannot square our account with God. We have committed treason against the Holy Creator. And the incarnation reminds us of our incapability and that we need a righteous substitute, that we need Jesus. Third, the incarnation means that acceptance of the genuine Christ means adoption into the family of God. Since Jesus Christ is truly man, he was able to stand in and take the punishment of his bride. He substituted his life for his elect. But look with me up at verses 9 through 13 in this first chapter of John, if you still have your Bibles open. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent 
or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. To receive Christ, to all who receive Christ, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's where, real quickly here, we need to remind ourselves that uh, unlike the, the, the liberal view of Christianity, all human beings are not children of God. All human beings do bear the image of God. But we see here, to those who received Christ, he gave the right to be children of God. And in 1 John, we see that some people are children of the devil. But to all those who who receive Christ, and what does that mean? D.A. Carson says this, to receive Christ in this passage means yielding allegiance to Christ, to trust Christ completely, to acknowledge Christ's claims, and to confess Christ with gratitude. Yielding allegiance to Christ, trusting Christ completely, acknowledging Christ's claims, and confessing Christ with gratitude. Christ came to the nation of Israel, and did they do those four things? No, they did not. They rejected him. They wanted a Messiah. They just didn't want the one they got. So back to the questions at the beginning of the service. Do we really need to believe the virgin birth? Do we really need to believe in the incarnation? Do we really need to believe that God became flesh? Do we need to believe the, everything the Bible says about Jesus? Or can we just say Jesus? Will we too reject the true Messiah for the one that we prefer? Remember John 6? Jesus didn't change his message to keep the numbers up. He preached the hard truth because he cares about quality more than quantity. To receive the true Messiah is to be called a child of God, even if you're not a physical descendant of Abraham. To be made not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. Fourth, the incarnation teaches us to rest in Christ's sovereign reign over the world. To rest in the fact that God's got this. Look at, if, you look, if you think back to the passage in Luke, Christ was born at the exact time he was meant to be born. The census, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, the governors, the time that Mary was pregnant, where Joseph was All of these things show us a creator who not only created the world, but created this timeline and, and brought it about. All things are created through Christ, yet he is a baby in a manger. Mary is the mother of Jesus, yet her son created all things. All of these things are ordered and according to the will and to the purpose of God. Of God. We would do well not to be overly anxious about world events. Right, there's a, again, I didn't mean to talk about memes twice today, but there's a meme that goes around and it's of this like charismatic TV guy um, who, who tells people not to, to be careful about thrift store buys because there might be um, like demons in their clothes or something. And he talks about how Paul tells us not to worry about anything. We'll laugh at that guy, right? We'll laugh at that guy and we'll read passages like this and we'll go home and be overly anxious about what the TV guy tells us. But everything's going to happen according to God's plan. 
He raises up nations. He lowers them. He raises up kings. He lowers them. Martin Luther had to remind his lieutenant, Philip Melanchthon, of this all the time when he would say, cease, Philip, from attempting to govern the world. J.C. Ryle says, the heart of a believer should take comfort in the recollection of God's providential government of the world. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of rulers of the earth. So I don't know, some of you might find it controversial, but next November, think about the incarnation. I don't know what's coming in the next year, an election year, probably a bunch of shenanigans. Let's think about the incarnation and how God sovereignly brings all things about according to his will. The incarnation reminds us that the true king is Christ and that this is an embassy of his kingdom in a foreign land. Friends, is it important that we have the right Jesus? Yes. That's why Paul says, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, if anyone comes to you with a different message, let him be accursed. The incarnation, the hypostatic union, the nature of Christ, the, 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 the virgin birth, all of these things matter. And they matter to our, our older brothers and sisters in the faith. You wouldn't walk into the Council of Nicaea with a shirt that says, Just Jesus, and say, I just want Arians and Athanasians to get along. Because the, the Athanasian crew knew that the nature of Christ matters. And Jesus Christ, friends, is truly God, and He is truly man. He is the light that the darkness will not overcome, and He is the light that dawned 2,000 years ago. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise your name for sending your son 2,000 years ago, all according to your plan. We know that each one of us sits in this room this morning according to your plan, that every child that is born is born according to your plan, and that our deaths are determined by your will and your plan. Let us shore up the truth of Christ in our hearts today. Let the incarnation teach us this morning. Help us to trust you deeper because of what we have read in your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.